help find seats. Okay, because it's easy if you come in by yourself or maybe two of you, but sometimes if there's three or four or five of you, you're sort of embarrassed, especially if you're new, to look for seats, and so they're trying to help. Also, those people are after, uh, I think about, I don't know what time, but they go out there in the lobby and they stay out there for security because we want to make sure we can watch any activity going on anywhere else in our building and also that somebody doesn't come in while you and I are in here and the children are back there with their... They're leaders, and nobody can pay attention. So we have two people every Sunday doing that. So many things are being done in connection by volunteers. And I would say this about that. Uh, we're trying to have two people, men, women, whatever it is, every week. And we need three more people. So if you say, I don't know what to do at Connection, you can do that. And uh, Rick Taka is in charge of that. Just talk to Rick. Uh, he, he's that short, thin guy, and you can find Rick, okay? Uh, Rick is back here in the blue shirt. And if you're interested in that, that's an easy way to serve, okay? And it really helps. The security is of utmost importance, okay? And we're learning so much now, being in our own building and things we need to do. And I appreciate Rick. Rick's statement was to me when we sort of talked over the email, you know, I'm willing to do whatever. Because I talked about two or three things whenever he approached me and, and, and this is the one that, that is important. So we need three more people. As I said, it doesn't have to be just a man. Some of you ladies say, well, it's always men, okay? It doesn't have to be just a man, okay? And he'll help you understand what to do. You saw there that, that video of that woman and Jesus' observation. Of course, we're going to talk about today, that today because that's in the, the Scripture that we're going to look at. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. But Jesus talked about she gave from all she had. In other words, she gave what God wanted her to give. She did what God wanted her to do. My question to you is, are you willing to do what God wants you to do? Or are you always evaluating somebody else's behavior, you don't like their behavior, and so you put a barrier up? Okay? And uh, I'm going to invite you to think about that in a little bit. Before I do... I want to call attention to the screen. This isn't our Scripture passage. We're going to look at Luke. But I want you to look at Matthew, okay? The 28th chapter, the 18th verse, the 19th verse, and the 20th verse. Okay, we do have the 20th on there next, right? Okay. And uh, these words were spoken by Jesus. He had, he had lived on earth for about 30 years. For three years, He walked with, with 12 fellows seeking... Whoop, Seeking, seeking to, to teach them some very important depth in relationship with God. Then he was crucified by religious people, church-going people in his day, because you see, the things he talked about always confronts us to change to what God wants. And we don't like that. Okay, And so they crucified him. He laid in the grave three days. And then He rose from the dead. And for 40 days, He walked on the earth. Over 500 people saw Him. Some of them are named in the Bible. And what you've got to understand is a guy like Matthew walked with Jesus. And he could go and talk with those people. And if you and I lived there in Jerusalem or that area, we could go talk to Matthew who saw Jesus rise from the dead. And we could go talk to those people. It's how we always study history that is... Before our time, we have to look at the people who lived in that time. And when it's antiquity, 
It's always what they wrote. And so Matthew said, this is what Jesus said to them after He had rose from the dead, He had walked with them for about 40 more days, and now He's getting ready to go back to be with the Father. Okay? And the way Jesus lives on earth now is in what the New Testament tells us is His body, the church. Okay? And that's us. That's not this building. This is not the church. This is just a building. Okay? It's the followers of Jesus who are the church. And this is what Jesus told them. Jesus came and told His disciples, I have, given all I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now let me stop. That's the question. Does Jesus have authority in your life? Jesus has been given that authority by God. Okay? We are to follow Him in that authority. I run into trouble whenever I want to live on my authority. His authority talks to me about how to relate to my wife, but you know what? I get caught up in my own thought, and I want to live my way, and I run into trouble with my wife, or my kids, or handling money, or relating to people, whatever it is. See, Jesus is saying, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. God, the Father, has given me that authority. He says, therefore, that word therefore means if I have authority. If Jesus has authority in your life, the next words apply to His followers. If He doesn't have authority in your life, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you have not been saved, you have not repented, turned from your sins, and turned to Christ. However you might describe that, I keep calling it followers. Because Jesus puts the emphasis on, you know my my, those who believe in Me because they follow Me. Therefore, if He has that authority in your life, He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. That word disciple in the Greek means teach people to turn from what they've been following and start following Me. Some people are disciples of cars. Some people are disciples of animals. Some people are disciples of pleasure. Some people are disciples of sex. Some people are disciples, disciples of children. And what He's saying is you go and you tell people about me that they turn from being a disciple to whatever controls their life, and sin is what really takes control of us, and they follow me. That's the first thing he says his disciples, his followers, his churches do. Second thing, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, after a person becomes a follower of Jesus, that's a personal thing that often is done maybe just in a building like this or in somebody's bedroom or while they're driving down the car or in the parking lot in Hardee's. I remember the person I talked to and after we talked at the restaurant at Hardee's went out and he asked Jesus into his life. I remember a truck driver I went out and saw. He owned a bunch of trucks and, and there I went one night late because he was always hard to get so about 8.30. Nobody's around. He's doing some repairs because he's got like 14, 15 trucks that he's semi-trucks he sends out to halls. And we talked, and there on this gravel of his parking lot, he kneeled and he asked Jesus. That's a private thing, say. That's between you and God now. But baptism makes it public. You get out and you show people that Jesus is Lord, that you do what He says, you get baptized. So Jesus says, my followers, for the rest of time, if I have authority, are to go and help people turn from what they're disciples to, to become my disciple. Follow me. Then you tell them, after they become a follower of me, they are to be baptized. Now look at verse 20. 
and teach these new disciples to obey all the commandments I have given you. In other words, now teach them my words. In other words, there's three things that every follower of Jesus is to be involved in. One is, become a disciple of Jesus. Help others become a disciple of Jesus. Two, be sure you're baptized and create an environment that others can be baptized in. And three, learn the things Jesus taught and help others learn the things Jesus taught. That's the only thing the church exists for. We don't exist for clothing the world. We don't exist for feeding the world. We don't exist for healing the world. We exist for these three things. These three things cause us to become involved with people who need some clothes or need some food or need us to pray for their healing. These are the three things. And he says, and be sure of this. Now remember, this is based upon he has authority. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of age. A person does this, never gets far from Jesus. A person that gets away from these three things finds himself today excited for Jesus, but in a week or a month, they're down in the pits because they refuse this. Now let me say this. Most of us do one and two. Or not most of us, a lot of us here have done one, we become a follower of Jesus, and two, we want to learn the things Jesus taught. We're in worship today to learn because we... we the Word is the main part of our worship. You look at the songs, it's always based upon words. That's why they're new songs to many of you, because the old hymns were based on theology. The new songs are being written based upon the Word, okay? And so, and so most of us are, that are here today, we've asked Jesus to be Lord of our lives, and we want to learn the things He taught. But uh, some of us have not been baptized. We've not done number two. And so I want to invite you. We're going to baptize next Sunday. We're going to have a dunk party, we call it. We're going to dunk you. Okay? We're going to have food. Okay, you can read about it in that handout you got. We've got three people, 18 years or older, is going to be baptized. What I appreciate, one of those people told me that they had put off baptism because they thought that's what you did with a kid and now they had reached adulthood. But they know it's what they ought to do. Because you see... They've been hanging out with some of you and you talk to them about baptism and they know Jesus has authority in their life and so they're going to be baptized. So I'm going to tell you, if you've received Christ as Lord, if you're a follower of Jesus, you ought to be baptized not because you feel like it or because you want to, but because Jesus told His followers that's what you're to do. And so after this worship, or call me, my number's on here, you ought to contact me because I'll talk to you about what we're going to do. And you need to be baptized next Sunday. You need to join those three people over 18. Some of you may be younger than 18. Some of you may be older than 18. But I invite you to be a part of a dunk party that is being obedient to what Jesus wants you to do. Well, once you open your Bibles, what book? Luke, thank you. Book, book of Luke in your Bibles. Back part of your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. We'll have it on the screen in a little bit. Okay, and you can just follow on the screen. We've, we've been in Luke, really, almost two years. If we get to Easter this year, I looked back, because last week I wasn't sure, year, two years. If we get to Easter next year, we've been in Luke two years. And I think we'll finish before Easter. Okay, somewhere probably February and March. We're getting near the end of the book, 24 chapters. I want you to turn to Luke, the 20th cha or 21st chapter. We're going to begin there at verse 1. 
Okay? And I'm going to be reading out the New International Version. I'm no, I'm sorry. Out of the New Living Translation of the Bible. You may be familiar with King James or the NIV, New International Version. That's okay. The words are a little bit different. I read out of here. This is easier to understand by people who do not carry a Bible, who do not normally read the Bible. And so I just use this translation because we're trying to reach people who are not church folks, but are people who either got out of the church or never been involved in the church. And I would invite you, we have New Testaments on a table, to get one of those, and each week, just use that if you don't have a Bible, and follow with me, okay? Well, let me, let me just recap verse, or chapter 20. In chapter 20, <clears throat> I told you Jesus called attention to those people, or listen to them, and they were religious people, they were church people. He calls attention to looking at things from human perspective, and look at things from God's perspective. Okay? Because that's where we collide. And if Jesus has authority, we are to look at things from God's perspective. We all have a human perspective. We all have a self-perspective. This is what I think. This is what I feel. Now, I just want you to understand. Somebody says, well, how do I know it's human perspective versus God's perspective? The Bible teaches that human perspective always rationalizes itself, now listen to me, based on fear and uncertainty. But I'm afraid if I do, and I'm uncertain what would happen if I do. Human perspective, you, you talk to somebody, you want to know if they're coming from human perspective, their rationale always builds on fear and uncertainty. God's perspective always builds on love and healing. Love and healing. And so you can know where a person's coming from. Their words, their actions always move toward love and healing if they come from God's perspective. Now somebody with human perspective says, I don't like to hear that, because you see, they base their words and actions upon fear and uncertainty. And they wouldn't like me to say that today. But you see, Jesus called attention to that. And He had been talking for a few chapters about looking at things because when we were in the primary center, I introduced to you when we, when we began moving in the latter part of Luke that Jesus was going to start confronting the religious people and their wrong thoughts and their wrong behaviors. That comes from human perspective. Well, He sorts of moves from that now. Okay? He's going to, he's going to talk about a person that seemingly is insignificant. Okay? He's going to talk about a person that unless Jesus had pointed her out, the world would have never known her to be a person that was honoring God. The world would have looked at her and said, that poor unfortunate lady, she doesn't have much. And in their day, listen to me, if you didn't have much, it meant God didn't bless you. And even today some people do that. My wife had a miscarriage. I've said this before. It was early in her marriage. I didn't understand how hard that was on her. Let's get over it. But in dealing with women and loss of children, I apologized to her for my insensitivity. And we will see that child one day. We will. Because life never ceases once it starts. Understand, we see things as being insignificant often. 
And God never sees them insignificant. And we tend to think we're insignificant. If my child died, God must not have cared for me. Why didn't He spare my child? And see, they would have said, God wasn't blessing you because your child died. New Testament teaches people, child is a people, die because of what sin did. And if it upsets me my child died, then I need to be actively involved in teaching people that number three thing, Jesus, to learn the words of Jesus when sin wants them to feel God doesn't care about them. And Jesus points out this woman that it seemingly is insignificant. So there in Luke, 21st chapter, look at the first verse. Let's put it up on the screen. It says, while Jesus was in the temple, okay, because he's been dealing with the religious people, so that's where they hang out, okay? Uh, back then, religious people tend to honor God in the temple, and then they go out and live their life, and they try to make more money off of you, they try to take advantage of you, they try to get ahead of you, okay? Because even way back there, 2,000 years ago, God was all about a place. Not about a relationship in life. That's why we teach a connection. We're not really a missional church. Somebody says, are you a Baptist? Are you a Lutheran? Are you a Christian? Are you a Catholic? What kind of church are you? We call ourselves missional. But we're not really missional because we call ourselves missional. We're only missional if we take our relationship with Jesus into our family, into our work, into our pleasure. That Jesus makes a difference in how we behave in our family, in our work, in our pleasure. And some of you come to Christ and you've not allowed Christ to affect other areas except when you come to church, you look pretty good. But it's much more than that. So Jesus in the temple, He watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Now be careful. I've heard people talk about this and they want to put down rich people. He's not saying you don't give, okay? He's just saying... He watched, okay? And in Jesus' day, that was possible. That's why I showed you that video. Because in Jesus' day, you see, they, they didn't pass plates. They didn't have envelopes. They didn't write checks. You went to the place like they, similar to theirs, and you just dropped in your money so people could see whether you're giving how many coins you're giving, whether you're giving golden coins, whether you're giving silver coins, whether you're giving copper coins. You see, it gets less in value when the material, the metal isn't gold and isn't silver, and they could see how many you gave. Much like we do here at Connection, we don't pass a plate, we just put a box back there. And people want to support Connection, they put it in the box. Okay? Though you can sort of keep it hidden because use an envelope, the government says, government says, if you want a record of your giving, you can't just give cash, you got to put cash in an envelope or check in an envelope so that we know of course, check, we get your name. But we got to keep a written record of that. So we do. Government says every church has to do that to people who want it. Want that record. But see, we just put a box. They just put out jars in a sense. Okay? So Jesus is just calling attention to a practice they've seen happen again and again. But look what He says in verse 2. Then a poor widow. Okay? Now folks, Jesus describes this lady with a double negative. He calls her poor. To a good religious person, you're not supposed to be poor. God must not bless you if you're poor. She was poor. So they would have thought, oh man, she hadn't honored God the way she should because if she honored God, she'd be in some business, she'd do her job, and she'd have more money. And she's a widow. She's a widow. And widows were considered to be unfortunate females. 
because it was believed you had to have a man in your life, your husband or a son, to take care of you. Unless you would just happen to be a widow who had a commerce where you made a lot of income. Because there are some of those. New Testament calls attention to that. But basically in the Jewish experience, if you're poor and if you're a widow, oh, something, you must have done something because God took your man and you don't have much money and you poor unfortunate thing. And what their religion would teach you to say, say, why God? What did I do wrong? And listen, when you have misfortune in your life, sometimes if you got the wrong theology that's based on some human perspective, not God's Word, you start saying to God, what did I do wrong? Why did you let this happen to me? And the Bible often says what happens to us happens because we think we're wise and we think we're clever and we don't listen to God. How do you know when you're doing that? Because human perspective deals with fear and uncertainty. God's perspective deals with love and healing. And when misfortune happens in your life, God wants to heal you. I watched as we were singing. We got a person here that has a problem with their leg. Okay, I watched them as we sang. And as we sang, Matt says, would you stand? They stood. Their leg has been broken in four places. They don't know that yet. They heard it last week. It swelled up. They're going to go tomorrow. I'm just telling them ahead of time, okay? <laughs> Prophecy. Okay, been broken four places. Or they've tore the ACLU. They, they've tore everything. And they're, they're going to be... Okay? Now, ACLU, that's good. Listen. Now listen to me. I don't know what happened. Neither does the person. I just know this. They stood and they sang. And they had every reason to sit. And I'm not telling you don't sit. Remember when I had my knee replaced and I tried to come and I tried to stand I'd get dizzy and I'd have to sit. See? And if I had a health problem, you sit during our songs. Matt's not going to stop and stare you down. Okay? Sit. But this person stood and I saw them lose their balance. And they started teetering like this, and they were going over! And I could see myself over here running and saving them! I didn't have to. The person next to him just said, I watched all that. This is a poor widow. Misfortune from the Jewish perspective from their perspective, their human perspective, their religious ideology was, man, this woman's not very important. Okay? But Jesus points out her significance. And I want you, if you've got your hand out, I want you to open to the page with blanks and I want you to fill in the first blank because I want you to remember this. What is amazing about God, not church and not people sometimes, religious people, but what is amazing about God is that He never sees insignificance in the life of a person's potential. Your parents may have told you you're not any good. Your parents may have said you're stupid. They may have said you're a failure. Some school may have put some letter identification upon your life and you still as an adult see yourself as that. And so you feel you're insignificant. You may have experienced failing, falling, marriages that didn't succeed. You may have lost your jobs a number of times and you feel insignificant. But I want you to understand, the amazing thing about God is that He never sees insignificance 
in the life of a person's potential. That's why you'll hear Matt say from time to time, sometimes we'll show video from time to time, says we're not concerned about your past. We're concerned about your future. We're concerned about where you're going with the potential God has. Does that not mean some of us need to repent of our past? Most certainly. But this widow, to the religious people, is insignificant. To Jesus, she's not. And He calls attention. And that's interesting because if we followed through the book of Luke, if you paid attention in Luke 2, God uses an 84-year-old widow named Anna to declare that this baby that Mary has is the Messiah. Why didn't He use a high priest? Why didn't He use one of the priests? Why didn't He use one of the Sanhedrin? We talked about them last week. Why didn't He use these decision makers? Because you see, they never came from God's perspective. They came from human perspective. But He used a widow, Anna, who was looking for the Messiah, doing what God wants, being at the temple because she believed that's where God was going to bring Him. And He brought Him. And she pointed Him out. In Luke, the 7th chapter, Jesus is being approached by wealthy people, by military people, by Jewish people who, who are high in the religious order. But chapter 7 says, Jesus goes to a place where there's a widow whose son has just died. She has no husband and her son has died. Terrible, terrible situation. And Luke chapter 7 said, Jesus looked at her and He had compassion on her. She was not insignificant. Everybody else said, this poor widow, what is she going to do? Oh, her future. Oh, there's no hope. And Jesus looked on her and saw potential. And He met that potential by raising her son back to life. And then in Luke 18, Jesus tells a story about don't give up praying. Don't give up praying for something. And you know who He uses to teach? Who's the main character of the story? It's a widow. To teach us to be persistent in talking to God about things that are important in our life. See, a widow to a Jew was just a poor person who must have hurt God's feelings that she's in this predicament. And Jesus sees her significance and He calls attention to it. Look, verse 2 goes on. Look on the screen or look in your Bible. The poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. Seemingly an unimportant amount. I already talked about that. Hers would have probably been the copper coins. I doubt it's gold and doubt it's the silver, okay? What I want to call attention to real quick is just that anything people give is never too small. Anything people give is never too small if it's given unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you give is always consi considered significant by God. I've had people who say, I thought about giving to the church, but I didn't think it was that important. It wasn't that much. may not be that much in regards to what somebody else gives, but if it's what God wants, it's very, very significant. Now he goes on. Okay? He says, verse 3, I tell you the truth. Jesus said, this poor widow, and he keeps emphasizing that because that's how they see her. This poor widow, oh, the poor lady. She must have done something God didn't want her to do. This poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, 
For verse 4 says, For they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, and I'd underline the rest of verse 5 so when you read this, you understand what the story is trying to teach us. Verse 5, the rest of it says, it's five words, okay? I'm sorry, I said the rest of verse 5, just the next five words. Some of you got it all underlined, don't you? Next five words. Has given everything she has. That day she gave everything she had. Will you today? Will you give everything that's within your power to give? Now be careful. I've heard people talk about this. And they make us feel, I've got to give up my car, my house, I've got to take all my clothes off, give it. How come nobody said, yay! Uh, okay. I gotta give up my boots, gotta give all my food, I gotta empty all the money in my wallet. That's how we teach it. I want you to understand Jesus looking at her that day, and she gave everything she had. She had a cane, didn't she? Didn't give it. She had clothes, didn't give it. Had a robe around her dress, didn't give it. She probably has somewhere she's going to go live, she hadn't given it. She's had to have food. You can't live to be an old poor widow. If you haven't had food, she didn't give it. But I want you to understand, we, Satan wants us to discount the importance of this significance by saying, I can't give up everything. That's the most religious thing I ever, say, ever heard. But there's some days God asks you, in some situations, to give everything you have. To give everything you have. And that's what she did. Because apparently, from Jesus' observation, that's what God wanted her to do. And you see, your mind, Holy Spirit speaks to you, or God has somebody come to you, and it's the day to give everything you have. Everything you have. What do you do when it comes to that time? What do you do when it comes to the time that God is asking you of everything you have your time, your talent, your ability for your mate. Yeah, but I thought I could go out and throw the football around. But God wants you to give everything, your time, your talent, and your ability at that time. Or with your child. Or with your church. You see, if we all were out here 168 hours a week. This place starts smelling because we don't have good showers. And pretty soon, we would have no income to support it. You see, it's not everything you had. And everything you have. It's when God confronts you with the opportunity you have. You see, these guys gave everything they had. Matt said, if you have some musical ability... Oh, but I don't want to have to do that. You see, it's your opportunity to give from what you have. What do you do? What do you do when it comes to your free time? Do you say to God, God, I know what I have. I know the time. I know the ability. I know the knowledge. I, I, I know my talent. And, and, and I know what you need. But it's my free time, God. See, this woman gave everything she had. And because of that, Jesus saw it. You see, God watches 
24-7. And He sees whether we give. When He asks us, everything we had. And it's not just money. Look at the next blank in your worship handout. Fill it in. Many do not know more of God because they refuse. They refuse. They refuse to give God everything. You see, when that time comes, it's your choice. Don't read this story and miss that this woman went home. Miss, this woman went and ate something. Don't read this story and miss that this woman went out and enjoyed whatever wardrobe she had. Read the story and see at this point, at this time, God wanted her to give everything she had so that Jesus, we don't know whether He was on the roof looking down, Jesus would be with His twelve disciples and He'd teach them and say, you know there's going to come a time where you're going to be asked to give. Remember the lesson of the poor widow at church. That's when you give everything you have. Because that's what God wants. Look at verse 5. It goes on. I'm sorry. It goes on. It says, Some of His disciples began talking about the majestic stonework. <laughs> Are there three people who could be ushers in this number of people? Well, let's move on and talk about something else. Isn't this wall pretty? Do you catch the transition the disciples take? Jesus is talking about give everything you have. Okay? What do they turn to? Some of His disciples began talking about the majestic stonework in the temple. Imagine some of them probably had a few extra coins in their pocket and they're afraid He's going to say, you're going to put all that in? And that wasn't the reason He said that. I'm telling you. Unless God told them to put it all in. Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple. Well, this is what God kept, had Luke write about, so we're going to follow. It has nothing to do with the poor widow. And the memorial decorations on the wall. Isn't this a pretty place? Hey, would, would you be an usher or a security person? Well, you know, isn't this a pretty place? I'm not trying to beat that drum. That's just, Rick just mentioned that to me this morning. He had tears in his eyes. He said, I can't eat. I've been fasting for two days. Okay, Sheila says, man, the budget's going, going to meet all our needs this week. He says, I've been fasting for two days, and we need three more. That's why I'm bringing it up. I feel sorry for Rick. No, it's just, it was just a situation that came up a few minutes ago. So I'm not trying to beat that home. I'm just saying, it may not be all the coins in your pocket that God's asking you for this morning. Maybe something else. But they talk about the temple, the moral decorations, okay? Now, now, why do they do that? Why would they? The temple probably was the grandest edifice they've ever seen unless they got to go to Rome. Remember I told you, Jerusalem mainly was communities of 20 to 50 people. Some were larger than that, like Jericho. But Jerusalem was like going to the metropolitan area. And the temple was glorious. It was made, it had gold, all that. When it burnt down, folks, history tells us, Josephus, not Christians, a Jewish historian tells us that, that because it was on fire, the gold melted and it went in between the stones 
And Roman soldiers would take their weapons or some kind of pry bar and break the stones. No stone was left unturned. You see, he's just going to say that in a little bit. To try to get the melted golden metal that had hardened so they could take it back with him. That's a point in history. That's interesting. I don't have time to tell you all that. But that's an interesting point because Jesus is going to say something about no stone is going to be left unturned. See? Now, you wouldn't do that, right? It's a big building downtown that had gold in it, melted. You know, the bank building that had gold. People say, you can go in there and pry out what you want. You'd just say, I'll leave it to somebody else, right? Man, I'm first in line. Okay? Okay? But the temple was the grandest thing they ever saw. So Jesus is going to talk about it. Verse 5, but Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. This temple is going to be demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. <clears throat> Jesus is telling them, this which is the grandest edifice building you ever saw, you've not seen other things in the world. And you come, you make your journey to the temple a few times a year, and you're saying, wow, I love it. I love it. Jesus said, I'm going to tell you, this place is going to fall. No, no way. Human perspective, no way. This is God's place. This is God's place. There's no way there's any power on earth that can destroy God's place. This is God's place. America will never fall. No way. They would have said that about the temple. No way. It's God's place. Can't happen. It's God's place. Jesus says this, let's just say 30 A.D., 33, 28 A.D., 35, some years in there. Basically, 66 A.D. History tells us. History tells us. The New Testament wasn't written that late. So the New Testament doesn't have anything about the temple being destroyed. I'm telling you, it gives us evidence again that the New Testament is written very close to the events that are recorded. Okay? I'm not trying to make you think, boy, my such intelligence. I just know as I grow and mature, those things build my confidence in the reliability of God's Word. Are you following with me? 66 A.D., the Jews revolt against Rome. They're not going to do what Roman government is saying to do. You see, the Jews have forgot what we learned that Jesus said back in Luke 20 that you are to honor government that's over you. Only if government tells you not to honor God, you honor government. And the New Testament tells us why. Because government keeps peace. You know what would destroy a church? People who won't honor authority because it will rob the church of its unity, hence its peace. That's what happens with the government. And Roman peace was a term, Pax Romana, was a term, history tells us, during that time when Israel was under Roman Authority. But in 66, zealots rose up. They rose up really about 40, 30, 40 years earlier, 25 years earlier, became very powerful, and they fought the Roman government. And so, in a sense, in Israel, in Jerusalem, they wouldn't listen to the Roman government. And so, in 66 AD, a Roman army is sent to Israel. It starts in the northern part. See, because here's Italy, here's Rome, and here's Israel. And so they come over by land, and they just work their way down. And by basically 
69 A.D., early 70s, the army's in Jerusalem. And it takes them about three months. They circle the city. They're going to make the people hungry. Listen. Because there's not enough evidence, but there's some who record it, not Christians, saying parents ate their children. Pregnant women with babies were not having good deliveries because there wasn't enough food. Just want you to hear that because Jesus is going to say some things in a little bit. Terrible. They circled the city. They slowly began taking down the walls and moving closer until they got to the temple. So they got to that structure. And the temple in 70 A.D., not even recorded in the Bible. Don't you understand? Because the Bible's already been written. New Testament's been finished. History tells us that they, because of their actions, the temple is set on fire and it's destroyed. And not a stone is left unturned. And I explain that to you. Why did it happen? Listen to me. Because the Jewish people would not follow Jesus' words that says, respect the government authorities over you. Be careful putting down your president, your representatives, your mayor, the city council. I'm telling you, if I'm in your presence, it just crushes my heart when I hear you talk bad about those people. I'm not saying you don't have a right to opinion and you shouldn't voice your opinion and you ought to buy the ballot box. You ought to vote out the president you don't like. You ought to vote out the congressman, the mayor, the city council, the county council. But be careful. The Jews brought this on themselves. None of this happened because God said it should happen. It happened because Jewish people decided by human perspective they were going to do what they wanted to do. And always human perspective is based on fear and uncertainty and it destroys. Look at verse 7. Teacher they asked. Now they're going to ask a theological question. We miss all that when we read this and we want to get into what these TV preachers tell us about the end times. Okay? I'm telling you the context. You've got to hear how this is happening. So teacher they ask, when will all this happen? Because you see the grandest thing, God's place, the most important place in the, to them in the world. Nothing should happen. It's God's place. And I want you to understand, God doesn't have a place today as like a building. This is not God's house. Your children run through here and you say, don't run in the church. This is God's house. That's not scriptural. God's place, New Testament says, is in your life and mine. Holy Spirit lives in God's temple, God's house, God's place. Don't run off the mouth in God's place here. Don't run off thinking and looking at things and taking opinions that are not from God in God's place here. Don't hate in God's place here. Don't lust in God's place here. Don't raise, become a rabble-rouser in God's place here. Because one thing we know about human perspective and God's perspective is they're contagious. People who live for Christ, where they live, where they work, they live and love like Jesus, and where they play, all of a sudden people begin saying, man, your life, I want what you got. And if people live out of fear, from human perspective, pretty soon that's contagious, and they're spreading fear. 
Well, they say, teacher, they ask, because they can't believe this. When will this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to take place? Okay? You know what's interesting here? They don't say, they don't say, if these things happen, they say when. That's pretty insightful. Matter of fact, in saying the Greek, that's very insightful because what they're saying is, we've been with you three years. These are his immediate followers, the disciples. They're saying, you know, we trust you, and you say this is going to happen. Okay, we're not asking you if it happens. We're saying, what sign will there be? How will we know when it's going to happen? And look at verse 9. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Okay? In other words, all he's trying to say here is, listen, when you think this is coming about, don't panic. As people who follow me, and I've always said this, I don't care what crisis comes into your life, I don't care what experience of loved ones who die in your life, I don't care what vocational job you might lose in your life, if you will tie your future with Jesus, your future will be secure. You may not live in what you lived in 20 years ago. You may not eat what somebody else eats. But your future is going to be secure. But you got to live and love like Jesus. So he tells them, when you hear of these wars and insurrections, because what's going to happen now, folks? 40 years later, the Jews and the Zealots are going to cause this insurrection. And an army is going to be sent. And what's going to happen to us? He says, just don't panic. And we need to remember. Somebody says they're going to drop an atomic bomb. Wish I could tell you the story about dealing with my boy when he's in fifth and sixth grade when they put those movies out. Don't panic. Your future, tied with Jesus, to live in love like Jesus, is secure. Well, he goes on. Verse 9. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately, he says. And then he added, nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes. There will be famines and plagues in many lands. And there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. Okay? Listen, don't miss the next sermon. When we finish chapter 21, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, especially about the future. Okay? Because Jesus talks about it. But, but look what he says. After verse 11, he says, 12, but before all this occurs... There will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. Why will they be persecuted? Because they claim to follow Jesus. They hold to God's perspective. They take positions that Jesus would take and people from human perspectives do not like that. This book, Fox Book of Martyrs, is probably considered one of the best books to understand the persecution that has taken place through the ages. It starts with Stephen's persecution. It goes on. It's written, it was written in 15, I want to say 1570 or something like that. But it's been kept around. Christian people who study those times, read it. If you read this book, it's, it's boring after you read about the first 15 people who were boiled in oil and limbs tore apart and all that who are followers of Jesus, Okay? After you see when they're faithful and their guards become followers of Jesus, and so their guards have to face the same persecution that these people are doing. But if you read it, the one thing stands out. Most of the persecution done to believers were not done. Now please, back then, there, was, there were people 
Because in the 6th century, Islam began. Islam wasn't around until the 6th century. Do you understand that? Islam wasn't around. Somebody's going to tell you, Islam's like Christianity. It wasn't around. Or really, it's, it would be called the 7th century, the 600s. It wasn't around until 600 years after Jesus. Somebody just wanted to start a new religion. Okay? So, and that's another sermon. But, but before then was persecution. And you know who did most of the persecution to the followers of Jesus? It was people who claimed to know God who claimed they followed Jesus also. The book's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Christians persecute Christians. Or people who profess to be Christians kill people who take God's perspective. It's never stopped. It's never stopped. And I'm going to tell you, we don't like to hear that. It's never stopped. Jesus says, those things are going to happen. Okay? Now look at verse 13. But this will be your opportunity. Now, now I would recommend you under or circle the word opportunity. Because when you read about when is this stuff going to happen? He's talking about the temple folly. That's going to be in 35 or 40 years. Okay? That's what he's talking about. He's going to say, you're going to hear about insurrection and wars. They're going to hear about the rebellion of the Jews against the Romans and the Romans sent their army and so there's a major war in their land, okay? And you're going to be called on the carpet and you're going to be persecuted. And after, after uh, before the falling temple, we have Stephen being stoned by Jewish people who said they were God's people. See, these things are happening. So what are we going to do? And so he's talking about this. 13, but... This will be your opportunity to flee, run away, get as far as you can, right? Good. Nobody's got a translation like that? Good. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about your rationalization of, of why you did what you did, right? That's what he says? No, he says, this is your opportunity to tell them about me. You will be persecuted. Probably at this point in our life, you're not going to be boiled. And people aren't going to try to tear your bones apart. Though you feel that sometimes when you face persecution. But what Jesus is telling us is that when we face persecution, we need to take advantage of the opportunity. We don't need to flee it. And that's the hardest thing. Because people from a human perspective will not see it from God's perspective. And it's hard to get them to see what you're saying. You just talk about Jesus. That's what he's saying. The best time for the truth of Jesus to be heard and to be seen is when we're being mistreated. Whether that's in your marriage. I invited some of you men. I'd love to meet with you and mentor you. Basically, 45 minutes to an hour a week. One of the books I use is if you've got a mate who, who doesn't understand your Christian faith. That's, that's, that's your opportunity to live in love like Jesus. Don't strike out and hate your mate. You work somewhere where, where, where they, they don't understand you being honest. Talk about Jesus. That's why I'm honest. You don't have to try to win them to Christ. Let them hear your words and see that you are living honesty. They'll come to want that. He's saying, talk about me. Your words and actions should show that you live in love like Jesus. If you don't do that, listen, when persecution comes, if you don't put Jesus there, You'll put your human perspective and tell you it's going to lead you to where you're going to be a prisoner. If you put Jesus first, it's going to set you free. 
Others may not understand that freedom, but you will. You will know the freedom of living and loving like Jesus in a world that does not like Jesus. Look what he says in 14. So don't worry in advance. Look, don't worry in advance. Don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you. Verse 15, For I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Look, what he's saying is this. I want you to understand. When you face persecution, Jesus is saying, you will not be left alone. When you face persecution, people could abandon you, but Jesus will not abandon you. When you face persecution, it is, what did He call it? What was that word I asked you, cervical? Opportunity to talk about Me. That's what He says. We are... We are to say, when persecution comes, we are to say, this world is not my hope. Jesus is my hope. When persecution comes and people want us from their perspective to not do God's perspective, we need to say things like, listen, Jesus' words are the words I follow. See, we need to realize He will give us the words to say if we lift Jesus up. Things are falling apart, but Jesus gives me foundation. That's what He's trying to tell us. You see, because we are to understand and say, Jesus is King of kings and He's Lord of lords. If it really was government coming against us, in their case, it's going to be the Roman government. Caesar is not Lord. They are to understand Jesus is Lord. And please, in that book, the book, it talks about the Roman persecution that came because of what Rome did because people wouldn't call Caesar Lord. See, we need to use the opportunity... To lift up Jesus, when we do, it makes persecution bearable. When you don't lift up Jesus, you suffer all alone. In your marriage, where you work, with your friends that don't want to hear about Jesus, you suffer all alone. Look, he goes on in verse 16. Even those, look what he says. Even those closest to you. Look, look your parents. Your brothers, your relatives, and friends will betray you. They will even kill some of you. This is persecution by those close to you. Look at the list again in verse 16. Your parents, your brothers, your relatives. Out of four categories, three of them are people who have some kind of blood relationship with you. And your friends. He doesn't even bring up your enemies. Why is that? Because you see, persecution that hurts us often is subtle persecution. You say to your mate, or you say to your parents, or you say to your kids, or you say to your friend, the Bible says, don't bring up the Bible to me. It's that subtle persecution. When we talk to them about coming to church, stop asking me coming to come to your church. I think you only go to church because you want to get me there. Subtle persecution. When they say, listen, I don't want to hear you say, let's pray about that. I don't believe in God. I don't want you to hear talk about prayer. I'm going to tell you, even your government says, you can pray in public. 
There's a man who preaches, I think, every morning at the courtroom, at the courthouse. Puts his stool, gets up, has his Bible, and preaches. I told myself someday I'm going to go just hear what he says. I'm afraid he may always be condescending and not encouraging, because that's what people tend to do. But you see, even the government says you have a right. You have a right to pray. You don't have a right to force others. But you see, that's the subtle persecution. Don't bring up prayer. You, that's what I don't like about you Christians. You always say, let's pray. Some kid commits a bad deed at school or hurts themselves. And so you say to your friends, I'd like to pray. I don't want to pray. You always bring up prayer. Lift Jesus up. Pray. See, those are the subtle persecutions. Somebody says, don't ask me to do what Jesus wants me to do. You're not dealing with real life. Subtle persecution. That's what Jesus is talking about. And He says it comes from the people closest to you. He's not even talking about it's going to be the Roman government. He says, it's your parents. I don't mean you hate them. You love them like Jesus who wants you to love them. Your brother, your relatives, your friends. Verse 17, and everyone will, will love you because you take the opportunity. Right? Everyone will hate you. Listen. I've paid bills for Laura and I. When I say I, my family has paid bills for people. My family has gone out of our way to give time to people. My family has done things for people to hear them and encourage them. And then something happens and they hate me. That's what Jesus is trying to say. I'm not trying to call attention. I'm just saying, that's what He says. When, when you face that kind of persecution, he says, they're going to hate you. And what does he say the reason is? Somebody give that to me. Look at that rest of that verse. See, because you're saying, I think we need to do what Jesus wants us to do. I think in this situation we need to live like Jesus. I think we need to love like Jesus. I think we need to think are our words the words Jesus is going to speak. And what they're going to do, they're going to hate you for that. That's a terrible place to be, to have somebody do that towards you. But Jesus said this to His followers before it happened to Him. And you and I are hearing it before it happens to us. Verse 18, But He says, Not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. Now what are you saying? You, 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 you get your salvation because you're faithful? No, no, no. You and I can't get salvation because of what we do. He's trying to say this, God will protect you as if somebody's trying to pull your hair out. You will be secure in eternity with God because you follow Jesus. See, if I read you any of these, and I thought about it, matter of fact, I wanted to say a little bit more through this, but there's just not time. But if I read you any of this, these people literally died because they called Jesus Lord and they sought to live for Him. But their future was secure. They quit breathing in this world, but their future was secure. And that's what he's trying to tell them. Your soul will be in victory in relationship with God. Look at the last blank on your message map. When facing difficulty, fill in that blank. When facing difficulty, don't ask where is God? Why is God letting this happen to us? Jesus says it's going to happen. It's going to happen from the people who are the closest to you. And I've told you in history, it often comes from within. People who say, Followers of God. Happened with the Jews. When facing difficulty, don't ask where is God. Ask where is the opportunity. 
what, what can I do in this to show my love, to live in love like Jesus? Who can I help to follow Jesus? Who can I help know to do what Jesus wants them to do? Where can I serve for Jesus? You see, often when difficulty comes, when we face persecution, we pull away. We say, I'm going to just throw up my arms. I'm not going to try anymore. No, no. Where can I serve for Jesus? What can I say for Jesus? What can I do for Jesus? How can I live and love for Jesus in the midst of this difficulty? In the midst of what you might feel as persecution. See, because it could be with your mate. And God wants you to live. It could be with your parents who aren't Willing to give Jesus the time of day, but you, this child, are. Live and love like Jesus. Jesus is saying, when you feel the bottom is dropped out, understand, you need to look. You need to look for the opportunity to lift up Jesus. You can't rationalize the situation. Human perspective cannot be rationalized. A lady can love a man totally surrendered to him. And he can have an affair. He can mistreat her, he can abuse her physically, and he can leave her. And she could have been dedicated. And it could be the other way. A man could do that to a woman and she does that. You cannot rationalize it from human perspective. You just got to realize when it looks like your world is falling apart, when it looks like the pressure is there, you need to lift up Jesus. And you need to speak His words. You need to do His actions. You need to live and love like Him. And for some of you, listen, you feel the bottom has dropped out. You do. You feel the bottom has dropped out. You have lost your job. Man, what are you going to do in the future? Some of you, the economy, because people lied. The last two problems with your investments have robbed you of valuable money. Some of you have placed your investments where somebody has been dishonest. Okay. But don't act like the world. What would Jesus want you to say? How would Jesus want you to look to the future? How would Jesus want you to approach those people? See, for some of you, you've hit bottom. Your world has fallen apart. For some of you, your mate has come to you and they've said, I don't think I love you anymore. Oh, gee, that would tear me up if my wife ever said that to me. after I get over the emotion, after my friends would love me and would care for me, they would encourage me to live and love like Jesus in the relationship with a mate who might say that. For some of you, it seems like life is falling apart. Your children have said to you, I don't want to go to church anymore. That is hurting you. Listen, don't do human perspective you make sure you give everything you have to jesus when the opportunity is there you understand that right when the opportunity is there and let your children see that for some of you you feel your world has fallen apart you've been told it's cancer what are you going to do remember i told you human perspective works from fear and uncertainty God's perspective works from love and healing. And it may not be your healing. It may be the healing that your son or daughter will receive in the future because they saw your faith as you died. You understand that? 
See, some of you are hearing my sermon and you're just thinking one thing and you're thinking something Mike's trying to argue about. I'm not. I'm trying to tell you Jesus is trying to tell them persecution comes. It comes. And what you need to realize, that's your opportunity to talk about Jesus, to lift Jesus up. It's your opportunity to show those around you that Jesus is Lord. When the difficulty comes, it's your opportunity to live and love like Jesus in a world that doesn't understand that. Is there a question? Okay, let's bow together for prayer and then we're done. Father, thank You for these people being patient with me and listening to these words. Thank You for Luke writing these words down. And God, thank You that in Your wisdom You knew that we in this building needed to hear this first part of Luke 21. Just help us to go live it. And let it be an encouragement to each one of us that we need to be on a regular basis in a place where we can hear Your Word so that Your Holy Spirit can talk to us about what Your Word says. Help us to live in love like Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for catching her. Hey, good to see you, Brett. Anthony, good to be with you guys.